This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Leonard Mladenow. You can download the MP3 of our produced show with him at onbeing.org. Hello. Hello. Oh, hi. Krista Tippett. Hi. Hi, Krista. Uh, Nice to meet you. You too. I uh, have listened to your show many times. Oh, I love that. (laughs) That makes me happy. Um. I want you to say your name for me before we start, so I make sure I say it correctly. Because I've seen, I've, I've read you <laughs> being being irritated by people who say it in an overly self conscious way. So how do you say it? Uh, say Miladno. Oh, Miladno. So you don't say yeah Miladnov, which is what I was doing. I, I do. I do accept. Uh uh, uh, that per- when I'm, <laughs> I know I, sh- I shouldn't do this, but in public I say Miladnov, so people have less trouble with it. But I, it's really Miladnov. Okay. So you can say it either e- either way. But if you if you listen if you see me on the show, it's it's they're always say Miladnov. I, I believe. All right. Um, All right. I uh, I lived in. Uh, otherwise, people look for it. You know, they don't know how to. It's bad enough. Anyway. Go yeah, ahead. got it. Okay. Well, I'll I'll make a choice. But I don't get irritated. Did I? Did did did. Did you no, no, there was some place, oh. I think it was in your book about Feynman, where you were talking, who was it that was so amazing? Yeah, it was with, Murray. With Murray yeah, Gelman, Murray right? Murray comes up to me and yes. tells me how to pronounce And then he said it <laughs> Yeah. He corrected me. Yeah. yeah. Well, I lived in, I lived in Germany and spoke German uh, in the 80s, and um, and I'm I'm kind of uh, finicky about saying things correctly, saying especially European things correctly, but that's not always the right thing to do, because people can't get it here. <laughs> Yeah, and in Europe, it's, people have no problem. Also, with the ML, they don't seem to have any problem. Right. But, but here, here it has nothing but but problems. I yeah. Uh, I, you know, I get mail with my name spelled fifty five different ways. <laughs> it saved me once uh, at Berkeley. Uh, I had an overdue book, and they weren't going to renew my registration unless I paid the fees. And then when they looked on the computer printout. I saw my name was misspelled. But when they they looked for my name, you know, correctly. It wasn't there, so they said, "Oh, forget about it. We'll register you." <laughs> I say five bucks, <laughs> but back then, five bucks was five bucks. <laughs> oh well, I'm just really happy to be sitting down to talk to you. I so enjoyed uh, getting into your writing and your work, and um, I, I'm a huge Star Trek person, so we'll get to that. So it all just okay. is very exciting. So I think I'm just going to, without further ado, jump in. <laughs> Sounds um, good. Okay. What? No. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Chicago. Okay. Uh, actually, in Evanston for most of my time in Chicago, which is a near North suburb. Yeah. And your parents uh, were both Holocaust survivors. People who had separately survived the Holocaust, and then did they meet in the United States? Yeah, they met in New York. Uh, mm-hmm. My father was in the Bronx then, and my mother was in Brooklyn. And somehow, despite that chasm, they managed to hook up. Yeah. And so, you know, this is a question I always ask at the beginning of my interviews um, about the religious, you know, whether there was a religious background to your childhood. Obviously, there was a Jewish background to your childhood. But, you know, was was there any religious or spiritual substance left to um, to your parents' Jewish identity? Well, there was a very spiritual um, aspect of my parents' Judaism and um, the background as I was growing up. The, the religious aspect uh, in terms of God was a bit mixed because on the one hand, uh, my parents often spoke about God as if 
God would do this or do that or shouldn't do this or shouldn't do that. On the other hand, I remember my mother telling me once that she couldn't believe in God because if there was a God, the Holocaust could never have happened. Yeah. And what kind of God would let her whole family be slaughtered and so on. So uh, it was kind of a, a mixed message, but they were very attached to the cultural aspects of Judaism, um, as I am as well. Yeah, and, and then you ended up in your early 20s on a kibbutz in Israel. Yeah, when the Yom Kippur War broke out, uh, the government of Israel was asking for help, and I was, uh, uh, I think it was my second year of college. I can't remember now if it was the first or the second year, mm-hmm. but I dropped everything, dropped out of school, and uh, went to Israel to work on a, on a kibbutz. And it was a very interesting experience, you know, partly because I was doing something out of a political commitment, and uh, you know, it was the first time in my life I could actually do something that was, you know. Well, I don't want, it's not heroic, I don't mean to say, it's, but, but it was a, an act, you know, yeah. a, real, a real act of, based on belief. Yeah. And secondly, the kibbutz was communist. There were three kinds of kibbutzim then. I, I don't know if there are still the same movements, but this was a communist kibbutz. So it was extremely interesting to live uh, under communism for that period. Uh, we all, for instance, everybody ate together in, in a dining hall. Um, the kids were taken away from the parents and raised in uh, separate Right, places right. and the parents would visit them. Yeah. And, yeah, and when, when, you, and when um, Passover came, and I don't eat uh, bread and flour products on Passover, uh, and the kibbutz that was frowned upon that, you, that you, you, you were supposed to not observe Passover, and so we had to kind of sneak in the matzah and stuff <laughs> in Israel. <laughs> is so there you go. Right. <laughs> and, and you've told this story that it was there, you know, by way of a book by Richard Feynman, that your imagination was captured by physics. I mean, tell me, tell me what, what captured you that then led you to go back and study this and ended up really becoming your vocation. Well, ever since I was very young, I, I loved um, mathematics and chemistry. Chemistry was really my, uh, my first love in science. I had a chemistry lab in, a, in our basement uh, where we lived and you know, had the usual experiences blowing up myself. Um, and I, I mean, it was, I was my, I was fanatic about it. I was passionate because I, it was my way of exploring the world of being able to do active things to, it was like a video game today, but everything was real. You know, it was that kind of a feeling. And when I was on the kibbutz, there was nothing to read at night. Of course, there's no TV or anything. We had a, I was in a little hut with another guy and, uh, I mean, it was a small room, really, with the, where the wind would blow through and it was chilly and, you know, it wasn't very pleasant to sit around. But the kibbutz had a library with Hebrew books in it. And, and the only English books it had were these physics books by Feynman, which I assume was because someone there had gone to college in the States and studied physics or come back from college or something. And Feynman in those days wasn't really known outside of physics uh, today he's really a cultural icon, I yeah. think. But but back then he was just a, 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 a an idol of physicists. And I started reading the books. Um, one was a book called The Character of Physical Law, which was more philosophical about what physical law and physics is really about. And the other was uh, a series of lectures on actual physics that they used at Caltech uh, for, I think, freshman physics back then. And... You know, the physics I had in high school was very dry. Uh, I had some good physics teachers who who did their best to make it 
colorful, but basically we learn Newton's laws. And to me, Newton's laws are not that much fun. Right, right. <laughs> um, but quantum theory and the atom and all that is, is, is a lot of fun. And, and Feynman's approach was so quirky and interesting. I mean, the textbooks didn't read like textbooks. They read like someone talking to you and mm-hmm. someone who has passion for his subject and a love for a subject. And I felt that. And I, and I felt like, wow, here's the math that I was kind of missing in chemistry. And, and here's all this really interesting, you know, questions he keeps asking in this book. And gee, I could study that. Uh, that could be my career. <laughs> so I really uh, was inspired by that. And luckily, I got a job at Caltech after I got my PhD and got to meet him. So it was really a, a great uh, journey. Right. right. So then you, I mean, you ended up at Caltech with Feynman and, and with Murray Gelman. And, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's this, um, this line that is near the end of the beginning of the book you wrote about Feynman, Feynman's Rainbow. Um, I mean, it's really your, it's your story, but it's, it's interwoven with the story of his influence on you. And you wrote, to be a physicist is to have an enormous potential to change the world. And that's a very grand sentence, you know, and I just wonder, you know, when, how do you trace the origins of that sense in you? And also, you know, what did it mean there um, when you started to, to articulate that? Well, you know, I think I've always been inspired by my father's experiences and, my father was just a normal person, a poor, grew up poor in, in Poland. Uh, I remember him telling me about once about eating roadkill and what a treat oh. that was when they found a deer that had been killed on the road. Um, and he was a tailor. He had a seventh grade education. And, uh, but when, when the war came, you know, he faced, well, he faced horrors for one. He lost his wife and his uh, child, his, most of his siblings. Um, but he joined the Jewish underground, yeah. and his reaction to it was to try and do something about it, you know, and to risk his life. And he has just amazing stories that uh, that he told me that I actually taped hmm. uh, at one stage. I mean, he didn't want to talk about it for most of his life, but there was a window of a couple of years where he opened up and then he closed up again. Hmm. And that really influenced me a lot because I felt, you know, that he, you know, just his, you know, that time where, where he was striving for good and putting himself out there and, you know, working really day and night, too, because he was like a slave laborer during the day for the yeah. Nazis, and, yeah. and they'd stay up all night doing their underground work. I mean, it was just a, a struggle, a struggle to, you know, to overcome the, the what, what was there and, and to change you know, really bad things. And, you know, when I was in college... I think one of the things when I would I took a tremendous number of courses. I mean, the normal I think was four, and I was taking seven at mm. a time. I had three majors <laughs> through most of it: right. uh, chemistry, physics, and math. And um, and I had to get all these permissions from the dean to take the extra courses. Mm-hmm. Good thing they didn't bill my parents. You know, I had a scholarship, so they mm. could have billed them and paid it themselves, I guess. But um, you know. Uh, I, felt, I remember feeling when I'm working from 9 a.m. till 2 a.m. and, you know, having fun, though, working at stuff that I loved, that I was struggling, as my father did in a way, although mine was a mental struggle. And I think when I got into physics, I, I realized that, gee, I mean, not that I'm going to be good enough to do that, but the, but in most fields, the, the potential is not there to discover something that totally changes the way everyone thinks, the way everyone lives, um, you know, but physicists through history occasionally have done that. And on a smaller level, 
physicists have put bricks into edifices that end up doing that as well. So you don't mm-hmm. have to be the Newton or the Einstein, but you can be an ordinary physicist and still contribute to that. But where else does the power of an idea, you know, other than science is in general, but especially in physics, where we can sit down like Einstein did and think <laughs> and produce something that's maybe tw- 20 pages long that changes everything. I mean, that's yeah. Yeah. awesome to get into a job like that. <laughs> yeah, and to be in that lineage, as you say, building all the, the, the cumulative work of physics that goes on all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you know, it's very striking. You, you again, referring to, to Feynman, but, but, but I think this comes through in all your writing. You know, you talk about you know, you said this about him near the end of his days that you found answers you sought about the nature of science and the scientists, but also you discovered a new approach to life. And I, and I just wonder if you'd say a little bit more about the contours of that, the substance of that, that, that approach to life that you got from him. And, but he was so steeped in physics too, right? Yeah. Well, that's, if the title of that book that I wrote was Feynman's Rainbow. And that incident really, I think, illustrates things where we were walking along and, and was looking at a rainbow and he asked me what makes the rainbow beautiful and, I, and I'm thinking about it and, and um, or he asked me what makes the rainbow and I'm thinking about the physics of the rainbow huh. and, and, and his point was that the rainbow is beautiful because it's beautiful to behold and that there's a connection between, you, you have, in physics you have to follow your passion and that's really what's important, not the, not the technical aspects of it. Hmm. And when I was at uh, first got to Caltech, and I I had thought about becoming a writer because I loved writing as well as physics, and I somehow wanted to be able to do both. I always felt I had to hide my writing because physicists really frowned on it. You know, they hmm. they were so focused and narrow in their field. And Feynman really taught me that. You need to follow your passions in life, if you can. I mean, not everyone has that opportunity, but if you can, it's best to follow your passions in life. And that not just will that be more fulfilling, but you'll do better work. Hmm. And when you look at physics problems, you have to look at it from that point of view, from the point of view of it this being a beautiful problem and, and, and you being excited about trying to solve it. It's not just a job. And you should try to uh, have, live your whole life that way if you can. Which was very different because a lot of a lot of people in science are very. They may start that way, but they soon get focused on success and get focused on what they're supposed to do and publishing a certain amount. And that's kind of a human, uh, a human, problem, human condition right. problem too. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. get into the game, yeah. you know, and you get lost about what you were really there for, and you're so focused on winning the game. And yeah. so he really, really instilled in me not to do that. You know, one of the qualities that you describe in him that I actually would also say is a quality of your science writing, which is very unusual, is there's a playfulness, right? There's a there's a playfulness and a joyfulness about it. That's also that's also those are also words I don't think people necessarily attach to science in their imagination. Yeah, and I appreciate you saying that and it's funny because I don't aim to do that, but that's how I feel. I, you know, it's in there because when I write my books even though they may be on a technical aspect of science, I, 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 that's where I'm coming from is a feeling of joy or um, enthusiasm or humor or, or, or spirituality that, that, that I hope comes out that I'm not writing a textbook. I'm putting me yeah. into my books. Yeah. 
So you also, and I suppose this could be could be um, associated with playfulness, although uh, for many people it's deadly serious. You you wrote, <laughs> you have written for Star Trek. <laughs> um, <laughs> the next generation. The next right. generation, which is the best of the series, right? That's what I think. Okay. I never get to have <laughs> this conversation with not. people. Yeah. Everyone says, oh, they grew up loving Star Trek. Fine, yeah. But the one that really mattered was Star Trek The Next Generation. So <laughs> I was so excited. Um, when I saw this in you, um, I was also really surprised you wrote that the original series was considered to be pretty much a failure originally by everybody, including Gene Roddenberry, which I never had known. Yes, it didn't do very well, and I think it was even canceled. It may have been then brought back for another year. It only ran, I think, three years. I mean, series were supposed to run five years to be successful because then they could syndicate them. But it really, it really wasn't. And what happened was after it was canceled, there was like a groundswell of, you know, it had like a cult, cult following, but the cult following grew to being a non-cult following and yeah. eventually demanded that it come back, which was amazing. And when it came back, it came back, you know, I think, better than the original. Better, yeah. But it's, that is just such a fascinating thing to me because, I mean, I interview a lot of scientists and, I mean, you're in that world. And, and this is not just true of scientists, but that series made an impression on so many interesting people in the world. Um, so to think of it as something that, you know, to me, it's one of these things, it's kind of the kind of thing you write about now. I mean, we, we, we're not always seeing... We're not always seeing the whole picture. We're not always seeing the reality of, of, of what matters that's going on. But, um, you know, for you, I think to be a writer, I, of, it's, like you're, it's like a Trekkie version of, uh, you know, a 13th century rabbi encoding Talmudic <laughs> wisdom for the generations, right? Like, <laughs> you're one of the creators. <laughs> yeah, you, you mix uh, the Talmud and a little Klingon and you get exactly. something that's kind of interesting. <laughs> and hopefully you learn something along the way. Yeah, and I mean, you you tell you tell this funny story about uh, about I don't know here here where you told this. Maybe this a, a lovely piece you wrote in Newsweek about that, which we'll we'll put on our website. Um, you know, being, somehow coming into a conversation with an attorney, quoting from Klingon history, and and you listen and you you're tuning out, and then you somehow realize that. Uh, it was something you had written. It was an episode you'd written. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, okay. I vaguely remember that at first. I, oh, wait a minute. That was me. And that was part of the fun of Star Trek because when you wrote stuff, people paid attention, which is always fun. Yeah, and it, right. it meant something to them. And the good thing about the season, uh, well, about the next generation and this, especially the season I worked on it was that we really, I think, treated, tried to treat big questions. Yes. Uh, one episode that was one of my favorites was about whether... Data is a sentient being because data is a computer, but data is a really intelligent computer who acts like a human. And what's the difference then? Uh, so we tried to explore questions like that, which was the fun of it, I think. And it's why I think it had a broad appeal to a lot of very otherwise very scientific or intellectual people who would still appreciate watching Star Trek. Right. I mean, there's... There's we've there's been a, there's a lot of discussion about how how uh, a lot of real science actually followed somehow that that art that entertainment of Star Trek but but um, 
but yeah, you're right. And the, the next generation also had all kinds of metaphysical and philosophical themes. I mean, I feel like the original Star Trek, uh, you know, there was like the Romulans. There was this. There were these political undertones, right? These Cold War, right? Weren't the Romulans right. Russians? And but but then in the next generation, it was really it was you know in the first one, it was kind of what is it to be good? What is it to be American? And then it was what it is what is it to be human? I mean, and in many ways, even the exploration of who a Klingon was, or a Vulcan, or an android, or a Borg, uh, really got at these big questions. Yeah, I think that's there was a difference in time because the original being in the late '60s was a Cold War series, yeah. you know, and and by the time the next generation came, times had changed, and I think that this series got much more spiritual and treated deeper questions of humanity than those fleeting <laughs> patriotic uh, yeah. uh, questions of who's an American. It's much more interesting to ask who is a human. <laughs> yeah. Did you... So I went back uh, knowing I was going to interview you and I, I listened again to a, um, a, a, a piece of, a, of an episode from The Next Generation that actually we played in one of the very first shows... I created like, and this was like ten or twelve years ago, really before the weekly show. And I wonder if it was from one of those series you worked on. It's the, it's Commander Data, who was an android, who was always so trying to understand what it was to be human, and in a way, in his android way, striving to be human. Where he asked um, Dr. Crusher, "What is the definition of life?" Um, and I, I mean, I wrote, I, you know, I, I actually, I transcribed this, you know, he wrote, is this this beautiful moment? He says, I'm curious. He asks her for a definition of life. She gives him a definition of life. And he says, what about me? I do not grow. I do not reproduce. Yet I'm considered to be alive. And then he says, I'm curious as to what transpired between the moment when I was nothing more than, than an assemblage of parts in Dr. Sung's laboratory and the next moment when I became alive, what is it that endowed me with life? Wow, that's one of those eternal questions. Too. Yeah. Um, I, I don't remember if I worked on that or not. I, it just yeah. may be like the attorney story. Maybe I wrote that. Yeah. <laughs> but the question is certainly one that I've thought about, and it's it's a very deep question because I think having a character like Data really underlines, underscores that because you can argue with a biological organism what is life or what's the difference between a human and a bacteria or a human and a grasshopper. But when you say pile of silicon, and does it become, what, at what point does it become a sentient conscious being is a very, it's a question, of course, we have no answer to. But mm -hmm. I think that we shouldn't dismiss the fact that its data is not biological, uh, dismiss the possibility of data being alive because he's not biological and neuroscientists today are only beginning to understand consciousness i have a friend uh, christoph koch who works on that and we've had many debates but he believes that that all information processing systems are conscious to some extent even a, th a thermostat really <laughs> uh, any system that takes information and integrates it he would say is conscious and it's all a spectrum from zero or epsilon, a very tiny amount to, you know, a great amount that we have or perhaps an even greater amount that you might find somewhere else in the universe. And um, they're trying to form mathematical scientific theories of it, but it's really very hard. I don't think we even have a good uh, 
working definition of what consciousness is. Yeah. So it's uh, the very, very early stages. I think I believe that science will address that question eventually, but but we're not ready to do it yet. Um, I, I wrote a book uh, with Deepak Chopra called War of the Worldviews, where we, where we fought about that issue quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, I want to talk to you about that, yeah. Well, um, it's interesting, too, because you know, we're sitting here talking in 2014, and I think there is suddenly this awakening to this idea of artificial intelligence and even this, you know, this, the movie Her. I mean, you have Scarlett Johansson playing a... Her voice playing a, um, a some software that that becomes conscious. So I, this question um, that you know that data posed, whenever that was in the eighties or nineties, and and now the culture is kind of waking up to this question, which, as you say, science is just starting to really pursue seriously. Maybe. Yeah, I think that. In the fifties, people thought about that a little bit, and they thought it would be simple. They, they, I remember yeah. there was a. Uh, they took a summer off and said we're going to design a computer that can be artificially intelligent and talk to you. <laughs> mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that what scientists learned by all the failures is that it's extremely hard, and that intelligence, as we know it, or consciousness, or behaving like a human, uh, is not. There's a lot of subtleties to that 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 you don't perhaps realize when you don't think about it deeply or even when you don't try to accomplish it yourself. Yeah. And simple algorithms that linear computers have are, are not really, don't seem to be fitting to uh, recreate that. It's much more difficult. So, so this kind of brings me back around to um, something I really want to talk to you about that, that gets back to physics um, but is related to this question. Um, so, so I had a conversation with Brian Greene, um, uh, and that that still has me thinking. And 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 we ended up talking a lot about something that I I know is a given for for physicists, and <clears throat> and it's there in your writing, although I think you nuance it in interesting ways. And and I want to get into this with you, which is the idea, as you just said, that. That even as we understand uh, what life is and what human life is more than we ever have before, it it reveals itself as so much more complex than anything else we understand. So, so, so no, no one, no scientist in any field claims to be able to predict or understand human beha- personality or destiny, but <laughs> but most physicists do believe fundamentally. That nothing happens in the universe that is not the result of for of fundamental forces and laws of physics, and I mean you've wrote this somewhere from the birth of a child to the birth of a galaxy, and that is that is just a really stunning and puzzling fact. <laughs> yes, and <laughs> I could give you a monologue for hours about that, but I'll try not to. <laughs> well, I mean, let's just have a conversation about it because I, I haven't been able to really stop thinking about it, um, puzzling with it. Um, and as I was reading, getting ready to talk to you, I realized you're a p- perfect person to talk to this about. I mean, where would you start talking about that as a puzzle? Well, there are a lot of aspects to, to that question. Um, Maybe the most basic one is really comes down to are there miracles, meaning exceptions to the laws of nature? 
or does everything follow physical law? In a way, that's the essence of the question. Uh, you know, Isaac Newton, when he invented his physics, which is, say, the beginning of modern physics, the physics of the everyday world, he believed that everything followed his laws without exception, except that God steps in now and then and sets things straight when they start to go awry. Right, uh, right. For instance, he, he didn't realize that, he didn't know, he, I mean, it's, the mathematics was too difficult to realize whether the, the solar system is stable because you have all these, if you do just the sun and an earth, you can solve it. But if you put all the planets in and they're pulling on each other, then it becomes impossible to solve even today, although we can model it with a computer. But he thought that if it, uh, because of that, that it would be, it would be unstable and eventually it would run down, everything would crash into the sun or something, and, and that God stepped in now and then and just set it straight. And it was uh, uh, about 1800 that it was proved that actually that, does, that doesn't happen and it, and it is stable. So he believed in, in, uh, in the, so, some kind of limited miracles. Uh, uh, Pierre uh, Simon Laplace, who, who proved uh, that the, universe, uh, the solar system is stable, was very famous for... Uh, saying something that he actually <laughs> semi-stole from a Catholic priest. But uh, his, his statement, was a very famous statement, is that if you know everything, the state of everything now, and you know all the laws, and you have infinite calculation ability, then the future and the past are both determined. N- neither is hidden from, from your knowledge or from your eyes. And so when Napoleon um, asked him why there was no uh, God in his um, science, Laplace said, I have no need for that hypothesis. Right. Uh, so those are the kind of a little bit of the history of it. And if you believe that there are no exceptions, whether they be big miracles or minor, uh, minor deviations from the laws of physics, whether you believe in the quantum laws or the laws of, well, no one believes in one versus the other, but whether yeah. you look at the quantum laws that are fundamental or the laws of Newton that describe the everyday world, that underneath them it is, there's still quantum laws, but they in the everyday world, boil down to Newton's laws. Whichever laws you look at, neither set of laws has room for deviations or choice, let's say conscious choice. So if you believe that the brain follows those laws as everything that in the laboratory that we've ever looked at does, then it's not a question for a scientist. Uh, The only way that you would have the choice in a matter is if somehow, you know, imagine the state of your mind just before you're making your choice. And it's physical state and it's also based on all the things that have happened to your mind that have set it up the way it is but it has a certain state well the laws of physics therefore will tell you what its future state is what choice you're going to make and so it's not really a question for a scientist i go even further i say suppose that i think the question is not even posed is not even well posed because suppose that i allow for these deviations and i say now there's a little a little being in your brain that makes these choices that aren't determined by the state of your brain. It can override the physics and make you say yes, where the physics says you should say no. Then they have to, you can ask your question, what, what about that thing? How does it make its choices? Yeah. It's, it's still making its choices based on what's pre- information presented to it. It's processing the information. So is it making, you know, given a, a million of those little creatures and a million of me's and a million parallel universes, would it do the same choice every time? Uh, you know, or is it random or how, how do you even define its you know, its choice, its power of choice other than it's presented with the same situation. It's going to make a choice. But, but the totality of our lives and circumstances 
at any given moment is the result of so many more th- like there's you know I we imagine choice and we imagine we imagine a we have an intuition of purpose or pur- purposefulness or or the need for that but but even so um i mean so i mean so one one thing that was very striking to me about you know getting into the way you think about this is i think I mean, I, one thing I said to Brian Greene, you know, his his title, his book title that's so well-known is The Elegant Universe. And physicists use that language of elegance and beauty together with truth, right, in terms of, you know, the equations that are true um, are, are elegant. And, and somehow this picture of the laws of physics being as tyrannical as any medieval god was <laughs> this this is what this is what really troubles me the at the extreme edges of talking about the laws of physics this way you you could just substitute the way the most primitive human cultures have used the word god and we are so reduced well this is interesting because now we're coming to the difference between theory and practice <laughs> yeah <laughs> and this is the idea that we have no free will is an interesting philosophical question in in reality we we do have free will <laughs> because in reality uh, a system as complex as the brain with a um, hundred uh, billion neurons um, and uh I think a thousand to ten thousand connections between each of them on average uh, is it, so complex that not only could one say that one can't, in principle, model it or, or you know, or predict exactly what it's going to do next, but almost in principle you can't because in a, in very complex systems, small changes in the state of the system produce large changes in the output. Right. It's called, that's called chaos, but that's typical of high, you know, very complicated nonlinear systems. And the human beings the are, about I would the brain say every, is human that, being, that even, every human being it, is a complicated nonlinear system. Yeah. Hey, the ones I know are, uh, yeah. of course, not me. I'm very straightforward and uh, <laughs> logical and always right. But other people are like that. Right. right. And when you look at their brain, there's no way, even if you put the equations of physics it's really no way that you're ever going to be able to quantify or put even, as Laplace said, find the initial state of the system in a way that would allow you to do actually do this kind of determination because we're all finite creatures. And even if we get the best instruments, we can measure to the 10 to the minus fifth or to the 10 to the minus 10th, or we can measure something to 10 to the 20, to 20 decimal places. There's always more decimal places. It's an infinite possibility. And with something as complicated as the brain, I believe that, that, that small change, uh, you know, errors in these measurements are always going to, to uh, ruin your, your prediction. So, you know, I, I believe that, it, it, that what we have is what we called, uh, I wrote... Um, with Stephen Hawking, we we, call, we called it uh, oh, an effective theory. We said the con- that will free will. You could say we're we're copping out and <laughs> taking a, a compromise, but we call it in physics. You have these things called effective theories, which are saying, okay, there's some other theory underneath it, but this one that's too complicated. This one works, and, and this. But we're still even going farther and saying almost in principle that the brain is too complicated to apply Laplacian determinism, and so the free will that we feel that we have is is really 
does defy the, the, the God, as you say, the rulers or the, the despots of determinism. Uh-huh. Uh, so that's uh, just another way of looking at it. That's probably as far on the spectrum uh, toward free will as, as most scientists are willing to go. Right. Well, I mean, and let's just bring it down to earth. You know, your father resisting the Nazis in Poland. Um, if you if you took this blanket statement that you know that 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 there is no choice there is no free will somehow this was all determined by forces beyond our control or comprehension his your father's uh life there and his actions meant nothing and had no nobility and no no meaning well, I, and there's just something everything in I don't think just me but m- most scientists as human beings would rebel against that thought well to, to me even with my own view of free will and feeling that the laws of nature don't have exceptions what my father did or what anyone does uh, is meaningful because if you think of it this way that he's a biological organism uh, that I don't I don't know his the layout of his brain or how that produces whatever he does, so I judge him by his actions. And what he was doing with those heroic actions was revealing who he was. And there were mm-hmm. other people who revealed who they were, and and you know, and it wasn't uh, mm-hmm. in in my mind as as attractive of a person. <laughs> so I I don't think that the, the, that there's the difference between he's on the spot making a decision, you know, do I, do I take the fall for this or do I try to blow up that or whatever his decision was, is any less heroic if the decision was meant to be based on who he is as a person? Mm-hmm. I mean, it raises the question of whether there is such a thing as courage or maybe it's just that our definition of courage is it's like, it's well, like isolated acts, but you're saying well, maybe, maybe it's the, the courage is, is who you are. Uh-huh. And the courage isn't that decision at that moment. The courage is that you're the kind of person who would make that decision. Uh-huh. Now, I have to say that I've, I, find a bit of a, I find a bit of an opening also in the way you think about this and the way you write about your randomness. Um, so... Because so here's something you wrote, um, and I think these two things went together. I mean, you 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 write about your father's a story he told you about. Can you tell this right? Getting how he got the job in the bakery at Buchenwald, the <sighs> concentration camp. His sense that this is just random. Um, but tell that tell that story. Oh, that was in the Drunkard's Walk, and yeah. the book is about randomness in in life, and to me. You know, when I was thinking about writing that book, I was almost shaken by the, the realization that that I'm, you know, a random effect of something very bad. And I hope that for me, I'm glad I'm here, but I'm only here because Hitler and the Nazis killed my father's previous family, and and that led to my being here. Yeah. Uh, and that was a very hard thing to to face in a way that what's the meaning of my life? It, when it arose from something like that. And in that story, he was in the Buchenwald concentration camp and he had stole, he stole a loaf of bread. Um, 
from the bakery. And the baker, I guess there were a certain number of people who had access. They lined them all up and brought the, uh, the guys with the guns. And they said, who stole the bread? And my father didn't say anything. And they asked again, who stole the bread? And my father wasn't, of course, going to stand forward. And then they said, okay, we're going to start at this end of the line. And we're going to shoot everybody, you know, in, uh, until either you're all dead or the thief steps forward. And so he puts the gun to the head of the first person. So my father at that point stepped forward and admitted that he stole the bread. And he told me that it wasn't a heroic thing. That it was, He didn't do it out of heroism. He did it purely practical that these guys are all going to die, and I'm going to die too, or I'll just be the only one. So he stepped forward. And um, instead of killing him, though, the baker acted like God and somewhat arbitrarily uh, took him under his wing and gave him a, a job as his assistant in the in the bakery, and so he had a much better job after that, based on that incident. And it just shows you that even in the midst of all this cruelty, there's randomness or I don't know what whim. I, I don't yeah. know if the guy. I don't know if he was being human and and let some of his humanity peek out, or he wanted to play like God. I, I don't really know what was the person's motive, but that's. Uh, one of many things that happened to my father, I, if it had happened differently, I, I wouldn't be here and my kids wouldn't be here and everything would be different in, you know, in that lineage. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, you know, one of the things that's so fascinating is how quantum physics has presented a picture of the world that is so much more of reality, of the way things work, that is so much less ordered, more, you know, there's chaos, there's randomness, and there and it wasn't there for Newton or even for Einstein, or they didn't want, you know, Einstein didn't want those things to be there. Um, you know, one of the things you say is anything that is possible eventually will occur. <laughs> Just wait long enough and strange things will happen. But still, there's an order to it. Somehow. Doesn't your life work that way? <laughs> huh? Yeah. yeah. But but here's the out. Here's the opening. I feel you give. I mean, here's something else you wrote. The outline of our lives, like the candle's flame, is continuously coaxed in new directions by a variety of random events that, along with our responses to them, determine our fate. And it seems to me that even as you explore in great detail how random <laughs> how random as things are. Um, um, even when we we you know you say that we we are driven to see patterns and create patterns where the patterns aren't there, but essentially there's so much randomness. But you seems to me that you're also presenting our responses as mattering. That there is randomness, and then you, you talk about um, that even though that is true. You know, the number of at-bats, the number of chances taken, the number of opportunities seized does make a difference. It does sh- shift things. Can you just, can you explain that in scientific terms? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about Brownian motion, so uh, that says it all. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the, um, so the Drunkard's Walk, which is the title of that book, it come, is sometimes called the Random Walk, and it comes from a jagged path that particles in Brownian motion seem to take for no apparent reason. Uh, in Brownian motion, people look at uh, this in the 19th century. They notice that little 
grains of uh, pieces of pollen would jiggle around for no apparent reason in, in liquid. And they thought at first maybe that was a life force because there was no force on it. Maybe that's what was jiggling because it's pollen. But they hmm. eventually figured out, and Einstein actually is the one who explained it, that this jiggling comes from the impact of, of the molecules on the, on the pollen, pushing it this way and that way. And I saw a parallel with our lives because when you look at your life, if you sit down and think about, and I'm talking about in detail, not just the headlines, if you think about all the details of what happened to you, you will find that there was a time where you had the extra cup of coffee where if you hadn't, you wouldn't have met person A. Yeah. Or you probably yeah. don't realize that if you hadn't done this, you would have, would have gotten into a crash, which you, car crash, which you didn't because you were a little bit later than yeah. the guy, the drunk guy hit someone else or whatever. Uh, I, I, when I look back in my life or I looked at the lives of certain celebrities, I could find so many instances like that. And I had fun tracing some of them, how little things uh, make a big difference. And, but, the, but the little thing that happens to you, other than if it's something random like getting hit from, by a car, but the, in other ways, the little things that what they really do is they raise opportunities for you or they raise challenges. And the course of your life depends on how you react to those opportunities and challenges that the randomness uh, presents to you. So that's, that's what I meant by that, that mm-hmm. uh, if, we're, if you're awake and paying attention, you will find that things happen. They might seem good. They might seem bad. At first, you don't even know or you're, or you're wrong of what you, you know, you're, you're wrong about whether it's good or bad. Uh, but it, in time, it becomes clear whether the thing was good or bad. But the important thing is what, how you reacted to it. And, and how is that acceptable for you as a physicist in a way that the notion of free will is less convincing? I'm just trying to figure out what the, what the distinction is. Well, if I were to describe your every atom, then there wouldn't be this randomness. I mean, the other, there is still quantum randomness, which I don't... I think just as a red herring here, but randomness is really a context-dependent term. So imagine you're flipping a coin. We, that's one of the ar- archetypical random event in, in, in our culture. Mm-hmm, well, let's flip a mm-hmm. coin. And it comes out, if it's a fair coin, 50-50. But actually, if you, if you con- control very carefully how you put the coin on your thumb and how you flip it and where it's going to land mm-hmm. you can it's not really random it's going to come out heads every time or tails every time hmm. so whether it's the coin flip is random or not really depends on what you know and how much control you have and so what i'm saying about life is you don't know a lot even if you think you do yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't have a lot of control even if you're a control freak so a lot of things that happen to you in that sense are are random and the same thing with your reaction to it yes maybe uh, a, pers- a godlike person who knew where, what the state of all the atoms in your body could tell you how you're going to react. But since none of us are that, it, it really does matter, and you do have a choice, and and that and that determines your life. Hmm. Okay. Doesn't sound like you're very satisfied, though. No, no, I, I, it's, I just, I just wonder. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm, another scientist <laughs> answer. <laughs> well, I, I, I feel mm. like this could be a few hours, but the, I mean, I do hear. I mean, the word. See, your, if, if the quality of your voice tells a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it does. It does. Um, uh, isn't that one of your chapters also about how we can be fooled by voices? Um, um, yeah, and I just. I just wonder if there's a vocabulary thing here. Do you know what I mean? Like that the notion of free will doesn't work for science, but 
I mean, you use the word choice, and I suppose that would be subject to some debate, but there is some kind of interplay between... Um, I feel like there there's a way in which you're saying, you know, that that um that what we do matters, although you might you might say it and describe it and see it in a very different way that humanity has said that kind of thing up to now, knowing what we know now about the universe. Is that fair? Yeah. I I I definitely think that my decisions matter. Mm-hmm. Um now it's more of a philosophical question, I guess, whether I was destined to make that decision. Yeah. Uh, in my life, that question doesn't, it's something to ponder at times, but the effective theory <laughs> is that, yes, I, if I step off the building, I'm going to fall off the roof and bad things will happen. And I don't know whether I was destined to decide not to step off or not, uh, but uh, I take the decision as if I have a choice. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to live your life that way. And, and no, no one, whether or not you can argue that theoretically there's a choice or not, uh, no one knows enough to tell you what choice you're going to make. Right, right. Um, not even yourself, I think. And there's a way in which this, I, this, this thing that, you're, that physics is pointing out and that you point out in, in your books and on subliminal, the way our unconscious... Um, uh, kind of is influencing us in ways we aren't aware of and, and randomness. I mean, you, um, there, there's a way in which that pointing out how little control we actually have over so much of what happens to us is, is a piece of truth that the spiritual traditions have carried forward in time and that philosophy has known for a long time. Um, I, I also sense that there's the way you take that in, even the science of it, is that there's real power in that knowledge. That, that 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 knowledge is a is a is something that actually cha- does it change the way you kind of move through your everyday life knowing about your lack of control i mean how does that how does how do you work with that as a human being well certainly it does change and both uh, when i was writing drunkard's walk and when i was writing subliminal which is about how your unconscious mind influences you yeah. both books had a big impact on how i how I looked at the world um, and the books were about how you see the world differently when you know about those influences that you have no control over. And in Subliminal, I talk about the unconscious and, you know, that is you. I I certainly don't mean to say that the unconscious is not you and there's someone else (laughs) pulling the strings. Mm -hmm. But but what we don't realize is how much of our feelings, our, our actions, our beliefs, our coming from our unconscious mind and I think that when we when we raise our consciousness about our unconscious and when we realize where we're coming from and what's affecting us then we you know you know you're knowing yourself better yeah. and to know yourself better I think is a good thing you understand your, you understand how you're going to react and you understand why you did things and you just have more understanding for yourself so it not only helps you make in a way better decisions economically but it, it helps you um, make better decisions, I think, spiritually, because you, you, you have, in a way, more tolerance for yourself as well as more understanding. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in, it comes from, from little things to where, I mean, one study I talk about is people on the wine aisle in England, and there's French and German wines, and they're playing soft music in the background, and on some days they play French music, and on some days they play German music. 
Now, who buys music based on the, the who buys wine based on the music that's playing in the background when you're looking at the wine? But actually, two thirds of the people seem to do that. Really? <laughs> and, they, and and in, in exit interviews, most of them didn't even remember hearing the music, and they certainly didn't admit that the music swayed them. You just think, well, I'm looking for a Riesling, or I'm looking for the you know this or that kind of wine, or I like this, I don't like that. You don't realize that your unconscious mind and your your mood and unconscious level this is subliminal influence on you. Mm. Um, the way we elect, I don't know if you want to yeah, hear more about yeah, that, but yeah. the way we elect presidents, for instance, or politicians, a very, uh, to me, revolutionary study that was done at Princeton, at least revolutionary in terms of how I view elections. And we all know, of course, that way people look affects the way we think of them. But this guy went farther. He, he took dozens of elections. Uh, in, it was 2006. He gathered headshots of the competing candidates in dozens of congressional, senatorial, and gubernatorial elections from around the country. And he got people into his lab and he flashed these headshots, black and white headshots, the pairs of the headshots for each race to the people very briefly and said, which one is more, the candidates, Uh I'm sorry, yeah, Yeah. which is more, which candidate looks more competent, not looks better, but looks more competent, the one on the left or the one on the right. And if you recognize either of them, then push this black button. We're going to just exclude that. But otherwise, you push this button or that button, left, right, left, right. And he gathered data on which candidate of the pair in all these different races looked more competent. And then he predicted the outcomes based on that. 70% of the races hmm. were determined, uh, the, the, the more competent-looking candidate won. <laughs> So, you know, the way I look at that is, of course, if you're a staunch Democrat or Republican, you're probably going to stick with your ticket. But those swing voters can go either way. And they think that right. they're judging the candidate based on their views and their competencies and their past history. What they don't realize is that quite often, apparently, they're judging them based on looks. And that's because as we've evolved, we, we've evolved with a lot of uh, nonverbal communication between us. And one way we judge other people is by their looks. Right. Right. And we don't realize it. Right. So knowing this about yourself, when you see someone, I, that's always uh, in my consciousness that, that I'm judging them, all these different ways I'm judging them. <laughs> like you could drive yourself crazy being so I could, and I that. often do. So yeah. there you go. <laughs> A good prediction, you see? It's determined. <laughs> um, and and you, you write interestingly and very poignantly about your mother also in this regard. I mean, you know, you talk about how the extreme horrible experiences she had um, of losing just everyone she loved um, meant that she totally had to relinquish the illusion of control that most of us walk around with, you know, some, some sense of, of control. But you talk about how, um, you know, you know, one of the things she say about her is that current events don't get to her, she, um, Right. Yeah, she but but she has her own context for everything. That was uh, a big thing I noticed growing up. That you know, it's like we could watch the same. You watch the same sporting event. One person is for one team, one person is for the other team, and you get into a big fight. You both think you're right about the, which what the referee should have called. But with my mother, it was taken to a whole other dimension. I mean, for instance, we used to talk every Thursday when I was in graduate school. Every Thursday night. I would call her. And then one Thursday, I, I don't call her. So she calls and talks to my roommate. And my roommate says, oh, Len is out. And my mother, okay, fine, okay. My mother calls back in a half hour. Uh, where's Len? Len is out. And then she starts calling back. Uh, 
he's still out? How could he still be out? Something happened. Why don't you tell me what happened? And then eventually she's calling back every five minutes and she accuses my roommate of hiding my death, that I must have died uh, because I I would have called her. And, you know, in... um, it, well, in my book, when I told this story, I said, maybe it's a reflection on me that, that, that the cha- if, I don't, if I don't get in touch with you, the chances are greater that I've been killed than mm-hmm. I'm out on a date. <laughs> but my mother saw it that way. And the reason she saw it that way, uh, I think, had to do with the fact that she had everything suddenly taken from her. Mm-hmm. And she, that happened in her life where she was in a wealthy family. They had servants. They had a cook. They, they lived well. They owned a department store of the family. And the next day, you know, she has to slurp up puddles from the sidewalk for water. Mm. And, and she's, in, you know, in the forced labor camp, like in Schindler's List. And everything was taken away. Her friends were killed. Her parents, her, her sibling uh, died. And she, she had, that was her part of her context. And from then on, she would think of possibilities when she sees something happen that you and I would not think of. Right, and that's right. in her unconscious. She didn't want to think that way. But that was, to her, that was very real. I remember telling her, Mom, you should go see a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist because you have this weird way of interpreting everything and you're always fearful. Mm. And she thought she was normal. She yeah. said, no, that's crazy. I'm just I'm normal. I said, don't you think that your Holocaust experiences affect you? No. No, I've gotten past that. And then I'm not, you know, I don't call her and she thinks I'm dead. (laughs) But there's a sense in which her reactions were rational given the context in which she was reacting. Yeah, and we all have our context, though. That makes makes our reactions rational, yeah. We all think we're rational. We all have our our past history that we're, you know, maybe some of us are trying to get past or not. But but this colors the way we interpret everything that happens around us. So to me, it was a very interesting um, yeah. lesson yeah. to learn that, that, that the reality that I see is biased and it's biased by however I grew up and whatever has happened to me. So it's really fascinating how um, all of these kinds of things we've been talking about that get into um, human nature and psychology and sociology and philosophy and even you know economic behavior is another way to talk about all these things we've been describing and and you as a physicist have ventured in you know willingly or on you know whether you meant to or not whether you set out to or not into this but it seems to me that that quantum theory that physics as it has evolved even in the time in which you've been a physicist it it, it is doing that it is it is that, that and i mean correct me if i'm wrong but that 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 what physicists are learning about how reality works or how they think reality works is also having implications for how we understand all kinds of other things including ourselves is that i mean is that fair oh definitely yeah that's part of the power of physics that i was talking about when i said that physicists could change the world with their, just their ideas and I think that that the ideas of physics, even the more technical ideas, have a way of filtering into our everyday consciousness and and coloring the way we look at total non-physics parts of life. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's good or bad, but it's it's the way it is. And uh, it's, to me, it's good in the sense that when it gets people interested in science and inspires them to learn more about the world around them, then it's a good thing. But it's not i'm sure it's not always a good thing <laughs> but but i think i do think it's new i think it's a new development even that that 
I mean, there's, you know, there, there's quantum, quantum biology, right? And, and I mean, even that you as a physicist are writing about things that probably would previously have been shelved in, in the psychology section. Um, right, because yeah. the... Right. So, for instance, a good example, a subliminal, the book Subliminal, was a lot of it was about neuroscience. Normally, a physicist yeah. wouldn't write about uh, social psychology, but neuroscience comes largely from a, a technology called functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is like the MRIs that your doctor uses, but it, the F for functional at the front uh, t- refers to that it can tell what part of your brain is active right, right. at a given time. And that turns psychology into... That physics invention, by the way, you know, turned turn psychology into a into neuroscience, into a very much more of a hard science. And so, physics, in some ways, even through its technologies, is is entering other other non physics fields and 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 making them more physics like, so to speak. Hmm. It seems to me that this is a version that maybe Richard Feynman wouldn't have imagined of of, of something you said that he inspired you with an idea. Of that we're living, I mean, which he's, which inspired you then uh, when you were when you were twenty. A sense of we're living in an age of discovery, with physics at a kind of forward cutting edge of that, and and how that reality has evolved even in your career. It is he. He was right that we're, in a sense, lucky to be living now. I mean, I often think to myself, ooh, I wish I could live 100 years from now, or I wish I could live really? 200 or 500. Yeah, because I'm yeah. so curious about how it's going to turn out <laughs> that I would love to, like, jump. But, of course, if I was living 500 years from now, unless things are totally solved, which I am skeptical of, I'd probably want to jump another 500 years from now. But science is moving forward in such leaps and bounds that I'm, you know, I just want to live forever just to learn it all. <laughs> <laughs> The thing that's changed since uh, Feynman told me that was physics has um, gotten to a certain point, uh, fundamentals of physics, that is still exciting, especially in astrophysics with dark energy and dark matter. I think those are the frontiers yeah, uh, that are most exciting mysteries. in physics that are going to lead to new stuff. Yeah. Uh, but biology has taken such leaps and bounds because uh, physics has enabled it to have the technologies that it does today uh, uh, to really study a gene so closely uh, that that's uh, you know if you were a biologist this is an extremely uh, exciting time to live as, you know as well as being a physicist and I don't know if it's going to you know I think that when he, when he made that statement uh, it was definitely true but I, I think I'm not sure it's going to be false anytime soon hmm. because yeah. you know the pace the pace of adding new knowledge is so fast now it's and it's increasing it has been increasing exponentially the number of papers number of scientists who are you know funded to work that uh, it's just uh, it's mind-boggling and it's you know it's it's great it's just that it still leaves me curious it's still too slow for me (laughs) (laughs) yeah and but i think i think also you're right in in the 20th century even in science and in all of our disciplines there's kind of this this illusion of control right this idea that oh we were just about to crack it all and we right then I'm sorry, can I interrupt no, yeah, with a yeah, favorite yeah. story? Okay, so St- Stephen Hawking said in, uh, it was in, I think, 85, that, that by the end of the century, we're going to solve it all, and yeah. we'll, know the re- we'll, know, we'll know all of physics. And so in 2005, <laughs> I asked him, obviously, that century has ended. I said, hey, what about that statement you made in, two, you know, in 1985 that we're going to know it all by the end of the century? And he looks at me and goes... I still think it's true. <laughs> but it's a new century now, so there's another 95 years to go at it. <laughs> I still think he's wrong. <laughs> oh. um, 
You you mentioned the dialogue with Deepak Chopra, and uh, I, I and I took a look at that, and I, I guess I'd just maybe ask you what um, what was interesting for you was was there I mean I feel like you you are making uh kindred kinds of observations in your writing you you didn't need to be in Deepak with in conversation with Deepak Chopra to be thinking about those things that's what I mean but was there anything that came out of that that uh you know did it did it did it did it affect your thinking or did it did it did it invite you to articulate some things maybe that you hadn't quite articulated in that way before? Oh, definitely. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse yeah. me. Take a drink. Take a drink. Oh, definitely. It focused me on purely spiritual issues for uh, the time that we were writing the book. Um, now, he and I have a completely different viewpoint of things. Uh, the I think where we had a common ground is that he also loves science, and he he takes a lot of heat for quote using science, uh, mm-hmm. misusing science. People say, and I certainly didn't agree with a lot of the ways that he was using science. But when he applies science to his beliefs, it's because he loves science and he wants to prove that he's right. And I have to say, he is a zealot. I mean, he is so passionate about his beliefs that we did a book tour after the uh, the book came out. For, we were together for six weeks and mm-hmm. he didn't stop trying to convert me in taxi cabs, <laughs> Grand Central Station. Uh, and, you know, he, and, and he converted me in some ways. I, I had meditated before I met him, but through knowing him, he taught me really how to meditate. And it, mm-hmm. I really, it, that really seemed to you know, be a great thing in my life. And we would sit in, we sat in on an airplane and meditated together. We sat in hmm. Penn Station, New York and meditated. And um, at the same time, we would be arguing about physics. So uh, so what, what it did was it really focused me on spiritual issues for that time. And it caused me to think about questions that I often in, in the science didn't stop and, and take time to think about. So for, for me as a person, that was good. And in writing the book, I, I think I spent a lot of time trying to um, criticize the way that that he was uh, using science. But I also spent time uh, expressing that science can be spiritual and, and that there doesn't have to be a, really the war of the worldviews title was really a yeah. bad title that it doesn't have to be a war. And we, we both regretted the title yeah. afterwards. But um, so I think that was uh, a good experience. When when you say science can be spiritual, you know what what is that what does that sentence mean for you? Like, break that up open for me. Well, it means that we can think of who we are as human beings. We can value the emotional part of life. We can value the looking inward at who we are, how we fit in to the to our community, and also to the universe as a whole. And I think. That knowing science just just adds to that. It, it I, I, to me, trying to figure out my place in the world without science would have been very difficult in a way empty. To me, the way I view myself as a natural phenomena hmm. is a comfort at times. Certainly, it's a comfort at times of uh, grief and death, and um, it's also you know an inspiration at times that that atoms within me that are interacting based on these simple laws 
and then you throw in zillions of them and they are jiggling around together and interacting with each other, create my thoughts. That is amazing. <laughs> and you know, only as a, someone who studied science can you really appreciate how amazing and how wonderful that is and how it means how wonderful I am, which mm. is always a good thing to realize. So. <laughs> <laughs> you, you had an intriguing sentence in, your, in the dialogue with Deepak Chopra. You wrote, um, belief, too, can be a working hypothesis. Do you remember that? I do. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember now what the context well, was. Well, the context so. was you were you were kind of wrapping up and you were talking about how you had been in, in a sense arguing against this proposition uh, or certainly a certain proposition of belief. Um, but you you described a friend, someone I think you respected, mm-hmm. who talked about what her faith, her belief you know what a, the positive function that it served in her life, and right, and you were kind of saying, well, I, I felt like you were saying this is a, this is a way that you, as a physicist, could could frame the notion of belief as something that you leave on the table that it, belief right. too can so be a working I, hypothesis. Right. So, I, a working hypothesis is something that you that uh, may or may not eventually prove true, but it's useful to to use at the at the time, and it has it, it's a it's good enough. It's it's good, just as well be true. Yeah. And what struck me about that that person at dinner was that she was someone that I really respected, and respected as being very rational and and even scientific. And then I was surprised when when she talked about believing in God and the soul and uh, this spiritual part of uh, of religion that seems outside science. And then as she told me though how it helped her in life. And uh, I think also brought up a story about a person uh, in the Holocaust who who was facing death and how the people, among the people facing death, those who had faith fared better. And then I realized that religion can be a working hypothesis. So whether or not I believe eventually, ultimately, that it's true, I realized that if people feel that it's true, then it can be a good thing to believe in. And, you know, related to that, I also, I also had a revelation, or I shouldn't use the word revelation, but an insight. <laughs> a miracle? No, no, I didn't have a revelation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Please. I had an, an insight that I have beliefs that are not scientifically based too, and I believe them, and I can't help but believe them, and they're totally irrational. One is, for instance, that I believe that there are alien beings, intelligent aliens in the universe other than ourselves. Mm-hmm. And people have done analyses of what are the chances of that. And they, you can say how many Earth-like or sun-like stars are there, how many, what are the chances of an Earth-like planet, et cetera, et cetera. But, and we all know that evolution can create intelligent things. But that step from an Earth-like planet to the first macromolecules of evolution, nobody really understands. So we don't know how probable that is. Yeah. If, if that happens one in 10 to the 20th times, and there's millions, there's, there's, there's zillions of, uh, of life systems out there. And if it happens one in 10 to the hundredth, then there's probably none. And we don't really know that. But inside, I believe that that's true, mm. that, that there are other intelligent beings. So that, in my life, is a irrational, faith-based belief. And I admit that I have that, and it helps me understand other people's thinking hmm. as well. You also said to me at the very beginning that 
that Judaism was important to you, that I don't know if you meant Jewish identity, Jewish tradition, ritual. Um, yeah, all, all, all of that. Yeah. The, uh, the uh, values, uh, the emphasis on education, the, the culture, the history. And I think, I don't want to speak for everybody, but for me, having a thousands of years history and knowing something about it helps me know, understand my place and who I am. And, and I, I understand full well that I, if I had been, let's say, taken away, if I had been born beginning of the Holocaust and one of the lucky ones who was saved and raised by a Catholic, I would probably feel the same way about being yeah. Catholic, I guess, yeah. but, yeah. but that's fine. Um, still, uh, the way I was raised and, and in the, amongst the things that I believe it's, it's, it's culturally, it's important. So my last question, I want to ask you a question that you describe asking Richard Feynman. I think you said it was the final question you asked him and he didn't really want to answer it, but he did. And it was, who are you as a person, and how has being a scientist influenced your character? Oh, wow. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> your turn. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember his exact answer. No, but, no, um, your answer. I, I oh, want my to know answer. What your yeah, because he asked is. me. I was going to say, yeah. he asked me that. I don't think I did I answer it in the book because I remember not answering him right away. <laughs> no, no. I think you asked him the question. And, and he told me I should answer the question. Oh, okay. So now I, I, I am coming my, back. My answer. I'm channeling Richard Feynman here. You're channeling Richard Feynman to me. Who are you as a person <laughs> and how has being a scientist influenced your character? Oh, you know, it's coming back to me how he answered it, but I will get okay. to me. <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> I think that, well, as a person, boy, that's such a broad question, but I am a person who believes in passion and, and believes that we have a limited time here and we should all try to make the best of it and do the best for ourselves while not hurting other people. And that it's good to, despite having a spiritual side, it's good to understand rationally everything that's going on around you, both in the interaction of human beings and the structure and the evolution of the universe, that I think that having the scientific knowledge of where the universe came from and who people are only helps you to appreciate who you are and who we are as human beings and how we should act. Well, I think that's a great answer. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. It's it's been fun. Yeah, it's and been I'm, really fun. Nice to be on the other side of the uh, microphone than uh, usual. But I like <laughs> your show. Thank you.